and thank you, James. Well, he said, I'm going to deliver a word. Plastics. That's the word. No. <laughs> Obviously, nev nobody's ever seen The Graduate. That was, a, that was the word. Okay. After that poor attempt at humor, I think I'll sit down. <laughs> There's a story about an aging grandmother, and uh, if you hear the story, it, I, I don't want to even have you think the possibility that this is Dorothy Salem, because it's not, even though she doesn't have a car anymore. But uh, this aging grandmother, and this one still does drive her own car, and she wrote this letter to her granddaughter. She said, Dear granddaughter, the other day I went to our local Christian bookstore and I saw a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker. So I bought the sticker and I put it on my bumper. Boy, am I glad I did. What an uplifting experience that followed. I was stopped at a red light at a busy intersection, just lost in thought about the Lord and how good he is, and I didn't notice that the light had changed. It's a good thing someone else loves Jesus, because if he hadn't honked, I'd never have noticed. I found out that lots of people love Jesus. <laughs> While I was sitting there, the guy behind started honking like crazy, and then he leaned out his window and screamed, For the love of God, go, go! <laughs> what an exuberant cheerleader he was for Jesus. <laughs> Everyone started honking. I just leaned out my window and started waving and smiling at all those <laughs> loving people. I even honked my horn a few times to share in the love. There must have been a man from Florida back there because I heard him yelling something about a sunny beach. I saw another, <laughs> I saw another guy waving in a funny way with only his middle finger stuck up in the air. I asked my young teenage grandson in the back seat what that meant. He said it was probably a Hawaiian good luck sign or something. <laughs> well, I've never met anyone from Hawaii, so I leaned out the window and I gave him the good luck sign right back. My grandson burst out laughing why even he was enjoying this religious experience. <laughs> a couple of the people were so caught up in the joy of the moment that they got out of their cars and started walking toward me. I bet they wanted to pray or ask me about my church. But this is when I noticed that the light had changed. So I was smiling and I started moving and I waved at all my brothers and sisters and drove on through the intersection. I noticed that I was the only car that got through the intersection before the light changed. And I felt kind of sad that I had to leave them after all the love that we had shared. So I slowed the car down, I leaned out the window and gave them the Hawaiian good luck sign one last time as I drove away. Praise the Lord for such wonderful folks. Now, truly this story has little to do with the message today. But I do think we can all relate to the person who may want to flash that Hawaiian greeting at the person who's asleep at the wheel when you get the left turn signal. Hopefully we resist that impulse. But you may be less able to resist the honk because you love Jesus, right? <laughs> There's a lot of things that Scripture requires of us that seem to be very hard to do, like patience at a traffic light, right? usually because somebody's texting. How about respecting our unjust boss? We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That can be hard for us, can it? How about rejoicing when life is hard? We see that admonition often in Scripture. Here's just a few examples. 2 Corinthians 12.10. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insult. I am content. Wow. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's hard. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trial of various kinds. That's hard too, isn't it? To count it joy when you have hardships. But perhaps the most difficult thing that we are asked to do in Scripture is to be holy. Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 1 as we begin here. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, when Peter writes here, it is written, he's quoting Leviticus 19.2, which says, you shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. We look at that, that admonition, you need to be holy as I am holy. And we don't think it's hard. We sometimes, we think it's impossible, right? If we don't at least wonder if that holiness, that kind of holiness that we are admonished in Scripture to have, if we don't at least wonder if it's really possible, then we don't fully understand what holiness is, and we certainly don't understand how serious sin is. Now, at the very outset here, let's be very clear. The only way we can be truly holy is through the blood of Jesus. The only way we are declared holy is because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. But we are identified with Jesus in his holiness, and we are made holy in him. That's why the Bible calls believers in Christ saints. Not because we act saintly all the time, but because we are in Christ, and we are made from sinners into saints because we're in Christ. We become the righteousness of God in Christ, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, wow, I guess for those of us who are in Christ, we can all just relax, huh? Jesus fulfilled that requirement. We read in Leviticus, and we repeated in 1 Peter, be holy. Jesus was and is holy. But we are also aware that despite the reality that in Christ we are declared holy because we are identified with the holiness of Jesus, we are not always particularly holy in our thinking, in our attitudes, or our behavior. That's evidenced by my sinful response when I'm stuck behind the person who's holding up the traffic at the light. Go for the love of God, go. Among other things that I do that shall remain nameless. Well, check that. Actually, compared to the rest of the world, I guess some of us could say, at least sometimes, that we are holy. But here's the problem. The truth is that God does not grade on a curve. We may be holier than, but that doesn't make us holy by any truly biblical standard. Any believer in Christ who reads and understands God's word, who examines his or her heart, knows that their heart is not holy. Especially when we begin to scratch the surface and learn of the one who says, be holy as I am holy. 
Let's consider the prophet Isaiah from chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So here's a man, Isaiah, that God chooses to use as his prophet, as his spokesman. Not much is really known about Isaiah except what we read in his prophecies, but we can assume he wasn't a bad guy. He was at least sensitive to God's voice, right? Which implies he was also sensitive to sin and repentance. So Isaiah could have perhaps said, like we might sometimes be inclined to say, I'm holier than the rest of these people because God has chosen me to bring words of correction to this people. Nevertheless, what do we see? When God gave Isaiah this glimpse into his throne room, this glimpse of his actual presence, it's important for us to notice his first response. Verse 5 says, after seeing the seraphim, call God not just holy, not just holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. And then experiencing the equivalent of an earthquake in God's presence and a smoke-filled room. How did Isaiah respond? Was it, wow, this is really cool. The smoke, the thundering voice, the earthquake. If there were laser lights, it would be just like that cool church down across the street. Such amazing special effects. His response was the complete opposite of how cool is that. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had seen God up close and personally, the same God that the seraphim declared to be holy, holy, holy. Other versions of verse 5 say, woe is me, I am undone. Or woe is me, I am ruined. Catching just a glimpse of God's holiness caused fear, even terror. Because by comparison, Isaiah saw how incredibly sinful and unholy that he really was. That's why it's never a good idea for us to compare ourselves with the world's sinfulness and see ourselves as somehow better. Because God's holiness is the standard for holiness, not the world's standard. After all, his word says, be holy as I am holy. Not to be holier than the rest of those slackers and losers out there. It says, be holy as I am holy. God is completely other. He has set apart. He is unique in his holiness. 
He's not just like me or even like the seraphim, only holier. God alone is holy, the very definition of holy in and of himself. Moses tells us in Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, of course, this question from Moses is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because the answer is that no one and nothing else is holy, holy, holy like our great God. He's in a category all by himself when it comes to holiness. Think about this. My wife of, my, uh, my wife of 44 years is not my best friend. Now, that may be shocking to some of you, but she's in a category all by herself. That's because marriage is a relationship that certainly includes but actually transcends mere friendship. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, making it categorically unlike the many friendships and relationships I have with many of you here in this room, which are real and deep, but not like my marriage relationship to my wife. It's completely unique among the relationships I have in this world. So in an even greater and more astounding way, God's holiness is completely, absolutely unique and the standard by which any holiness must be judged. So back to Isaiah. Of course God didn't leave him in this state of woe. That would have been depressing. Because one of the seraphim then touched his mouth with a hot coal, ouch, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So though Isaiah experienced forgiveness, and in Christ we experience forgiveness, it's important for us to recognize what it means that God is holy, 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 and we are woe is me. Just as much as it's important for us to recognize that this side of the cross, woe is me, in light of his holiness, has become for us worthy is he. The Apostle John in his revelation saw a similar scene to what Isaiah saw. We read in Revelation chapter 4. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we see these two pictures, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament of God's holiness. And they both use that triple affirmation, holy, holy, holy. The fundamental idea of biblical holiness is separation, consecration, devotion to service of God, and sharing in God's purity. That's where we come in. 
while abstaining from the sinfulness of earth. It means perfect and without blemish. Metaphorically, it means morally pure, upright, blameless in heart, virtuous. We have to understand holiness to appreciate the cross and why it was needed. God the Son, the perfect, holy, spotless Lamb, took our place. A perfectly holy sacrifice is what was required by a perfectly holy God to forgive us of our sin. The, and only Jesus, God the Son, was qualified to make that sacrifice. Christians are called to holy living. They are saints who are, lead godly, righteous lives. Being sanctified or made holy is a work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's atonement that calls for obedient submission from those who have been saved. Christians are holy because of their calling in Christ, because of his atonement for their sins, and because of the continual ministrations of the Holy Spirit. They are holy inasmuch as they receive and submit to these saving and sanctifying agents. That last sentence is pretty important. Matthew Henry writes, We must be holy as God is holy. We must imitate him, though we can never equal him. He is perfectly, unchangeably, and eternally holy, and we should aspire after such a state. The consideration of the holiness of God should oblige as to the highest degree of holiness we can attain to. The written word of God is the surest rule of a Christian's life, and by this rule we are commanded to be holy in every way. Now this understanding of God's holiness is a critical component of the gospel and of how we work our salvation out with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians 2. We were reminded earlier of the reality that this holiness is not something we can accomplish on our own. It's all of God's grace. Nevertheless, if we begin with a wrong understanding of God that's not informed and shaped by Scripture's declaration of Him as holy, 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 we can get our entire Christian faith wrong. Just this week, I finished a great book on God's holiness by a writer named Alan Nelson. It's called Before the Throne, Reflections on God's Holiness. In that book, he writes this, The journey we embark on would be fruitless or worse, counterproductive, leading us to think wrong thoughts about God if we did not have God's self-revelation accessible to us. Thankfully, we do have God's Word readily available. But it's not enough to merely have the Bible in front of us. We need to actually believe it in order for it to benefit our lives. Otherwise, the scriptures only serve to condemn us for our hard-heartedness. He then quotes Albert Moeller, who says, If we can reject God as he has revealed himself in scripture, then we can and will reject everything else. In God's word, we can see God as he has revealed himself. To rightly interpret his word, we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand, but we also must cooperate, which means we must put some effort into it. And thankfully, God hasn't just left us. He's given us all the tools we need. We can spend time reading and studying the word. We can meditate on what we read. We can pray for understanding his truth. We can have a commitment to the local church and the resources that church offers to help our understanding through preaching, through teaching, fellowship. We have to study holiness to get God right. We can't make him in our image because he is the only 
truly holy one. If we get God wrong, we can have a wrong view of everything else. Realistically, we don't even understand ourselves properly without a right perspective of God. Tozer said in the opening pages of his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we misunderstand, misapply, or underemphasize God's holiness, we will misapply it to our lives. If we don't take seriously God's holiness, it impacts everything else in our lives. God is holy, holy, holy. Theology, the study of God, matters. If we take time daily to contemplate God's character, we can worship Him for what He has done for us in Christ, but also for who He is. He is holy, holy, holy. We need to trust His self-revelation. We need to trust our Bibles, my brothers and sisters. Why would we want anything else to form our opinion of God? Not tradition, not experience, not culture, not coincidence or circumstance, but the pure Word of God. After all, we call it the Holy Bible, don't we? God's holiness is foundational to what He has revealed about Himself in Scripture. Now, I do recognize the irony of teaching a message, preaching a message about holiness and recognize that it only begins to scratch the surface. It's too big a topic to unpack. We could preach for years and not... We see this theme throughout Scripture. But on the other hand, we also, recognizing that it's a big theme and we would take a long time to unpack it, we have to be careful. We can't just throw our hands up and say, well, this is just too big and too hard for us to grasp. That's because God has given us His Word. He has revealed himself to us in his word. He has shown us pictures of his attributes, of his character. So through, uh, though our language will always fall short, the word of God is sufficient so we can know what God intends for us to know about his holiness. When we speak of God's holiness, we're not necessarily ranking God's attributes. Now think about this. You probably have noticed this. When most people describe God's attributes, they often start and end with God is love, right? But 1 John 4, 8, which clearly says God is love, is still not the sum total of who God is. That's because we truly cannot grasp the love of God without also contemplating His holiness. Notice that the Bible doesn't say God is love, love, love. But it does say He is holy, holy, holy. The Beatles were wrong. Love isn't all you need. His love is a holy love. Most of the time in our culture, with manipulative phrases like love is love, what we're seeing is a twisted and warped understanding of what love truly is, seen through the eyes of our sinful and broken world. We take our culture's idea of love and we try to make it fit with God is love. What we're really doing then is we're trying to make God in our image. And let me tell you, that's a dangerous thing. Instead of allowing the Word, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, to make us into His image. This leads to a very spiritually unhealthy view of God. And sometimes it leads to downright idolatry. 
Let me say this. Anything contrary to God's word cannot be beautiful or good or loving. I'm going to say that again. Anything contrary to God's word cannot be beautiful or good or loving. It's never loving to affirm something God hates. All that God requires is holy. So Isaiah's exclamation of woe is me is important for us too. When we consider God's holiness, even just getting a glimpse of it in Scripture, woe is me is not an inappropriate response. We really do not know how sinful we are. If we did, we would see God's justice, his righteousness, and his holiness as absolutely essential to his goodness. Early 20th century English writer A.W. Pink wrote this. He said, herein is the terror for the wicked. Those who defy God, who break his laws, who have no concern for his glory, but who live their lives as though he existed not, must not suppose that when at the last they shall cry to him for mercy, he will alter his will, revoke his word, and rescind his awful threatenings. No, he has declared, therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. God will not deny himself to gratify their lusts. God is holy, unchangingly so. Therefore, God hates sin, eternally hates it. Hence, the eternality of the punishment of all who die in their sins. That's a very sobering passage of Scripture, isn't it, that from Ezekiel? Here's another one. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this side of the cross and the resurrection, thanks be to God, we're not left in that state of woe. We're not left undone. Why? Because the gospel has changed woe is me to worthy is he. Because the woeful state of being in sin has been atoned for in Jesus Christ. The holy wrath of God against sin is a real thing, my brothers and sisters. But escape from that wrath is available in Christ and in Christ alone. Because of God's unchanging holiness, Christians should not be casual or flippant towards sin. If you are a Christian, let us remember that because of God's unchanging holiness, our debt is settled at Calvary, and God forever justifies us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, died a few years ago, but he wrote this. If God is perfectly holy, then we can be confident that his actions toward us are always perfect and just. We are often tempted to question God's actions and complain that he is unfair in his treatment of us. This is the devil's lie, the same thing he did to Eve. He essentially told her God is being unfair to you. But it is impossible in the very nature of God that he should ever be unfair because he is holy. All his actions are holy. Think about it. God's holiness is the reason that the gospel is such good news. Think about this passage from Acts chapter 9. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord... And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
So true fear of the Lord is only possible through the understanding of God's absolute holiness. This fear, along with the comfort of the Holy Spirit, in knowing that through Christ we're saved with, from God's wrath, these things go together. And not together, it's somehow connected to the growth of the early church. Isn't that an interesting thing to think about? That the fear of the Lord had something to do with the growth of the early church. Let's ask ourselves this, my brothers and sisters. Are there times we treat God's holiness and our sin too casually? We are casual in our sin. We are casual in calling others to repentance, afraid of offending them. We are casual in our times of prayer and Bible reading. We are casual with the Lord as though his holiness applies to everyone except us. We think and speak so often of God's grace, and that's absolutely appropriate. But in this state of grace, my prayer is that we never lose our reverence for the holiness of God. I pray we always let God's revelation of himself and of his holiness in his word be the thing that shapes us instead of the other way around, us trying to shape him into our image. These truths help us to be very real about our need for grace. Let's never grow soft on sin. Starting with our own sin. We must start there because the Word tells us to take the log, that glaring sin, out of our own eye first. But then what does it tell us to do? Assuming we've taken that big log out. It tells us that we do this, we repent of our own sin first, so that we can see clearly enough to help a fellow believer see that speck in his eye and help remove it too. It seems like in our culture, the only thing wrong is to tell someone they're wrong. But by God's grace, sin is identified so that grace can do something about it. Sin is sin. It's not a mistake. Mistakes only mean you just try to do better next time. Sin isn't just a weakness because that only means you just try to be stronger next time. Sin requires forgiveness. They require grace. And forgiveness is found only in repentance through Christ's sacrifice for us. A holy, holy, holy God taking our sin upon himself and offering forgiveness and healing and restoration. I hope in these days, here among us here at TCF, my brothers and sisters, we can all have some woe is me moments. And we can also have some worthy are you moments in our lives as we ponder the absolutely holy character of the great God that we serve. His holiness saturates all of his other attributes. Because of this, nothing of God can be fully or rightly understood without also understanding that God is holy, holy, holy. God's uh, love, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his righteousness, his wrath, his plans and promises, they are all holy, holy, holy. Because of that reality, his goal for us is to be holy as I am holy. May the Lord, by his grace, continue to conform us into the image of his Son, through whom and only through whom we who are in Christ are declared 
holy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your self-revelation. We're thankful, Father, that you just didn't leave us scrambling in the dark trying to figure out to do with this life, but that you've given us clear direction. You've given us all of the authority for what we believe and what we do, for the attitudes we have. Father, all of that's in your word, and all of it is part of your character of holiness. Father, when we truly see our sin, we can't help but say, woe is me. But Father, when we see the cross of Christ and that you have taken that sin upon yourself so that we didn't have to, all we can do is fall on our faces and say, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive our honor and our glory. We pray, Father, that these things would be the hallmark of this people of God here at TCF and that your Holy Spirit would continue to shape us day by day into your image, which is holy, holy, holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.